Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 68, Pre-Submission to Preeminence, sh showcasing FDA's latest pre-sub guidance and uncovering PCCP best practices. I'm Stephen Bernacki, Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to begin today by telling you a little bit about RQM Plus, and then I'm going to jump in and introduce today's panelists. So RQM Plus is the leading medtech service provider with the world's largest global team of regulatory and quality experts. Building upon 40 years of regulatory expertise, we also provide comprehensive clinical trial, lab, reimbursement services, as well as technology solutions, reducing risk throughout the entire product lifecycle for medical devices, digital therapeutics, and diagnostics. RQM Plus Live is our panel discussion format show um, that we currently conduct monthly, covering timely topics, challenges, and solutions in the medtech industry. It's also a premier opportunity for you to ask our seasoned leaders uh, questions. So we'd love to answer any questions you have today, and you can ask them by typing them into the questions area that's located in the webinar interface. So on to today's panelists, the first of whom is Nancy Morrison, Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. Nancy has RAC certifications for the US and EU, has led our MDR and IVDR leadership councils, and has over 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. She regularly interacts with the FDA through breakthrough device sprints, pre-submission meetings, submission issue requests, and appeal meetings. Our next panelist is Allison Komiyama, Vice President of MedTech Innovation. Allison is the former founder and president of Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, which joined the RQM Plus family about a year and a half ago, and she's also worked previously at the FDA as a lead reviewer in CDRH. Her primary focus areas at RQM Plus are pre-submissions and pre-market submissions for medical device companies, especially those in the digital therapeutic or digital diagnostic space. Third, we have principal engineer Rishi Getakar. Rishi has worked at several large, mid-sized, and smaller startups where he was leading engineering and manufacturing functions. Uh, he's launched several medical devices that were software controlled and some incorporated machine learning algorithms. Rishi brings a deep understanding of requirements for implement, implementing high-quality software systems that are reliable and secure for RQM Plus clients. Uh, next, we have Brian Pinder, Principal Engineer. Brian has his rack and previously worked at the FDA where he is, was a lead reviewer of orthopedic devices. After his almost nine years at the FDA, Brian was a risk manager and regulatory engineer for a manufacturer of electromechanical and software-only medical devices. And finally, today's moderator and first time on the show is account manager, Shamik Mohile. Uh, Shamik has been with RQM Plus for seven years, beginning as a regulatory and quality consultant, and he's now focused on serving clients in a business development role with a specialty in serving small to mid-sized clients. So without further delay, I'm gonna hand it off to you, Shamik, uh, to get the discussion going. It's all you. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate the intro. And just want to say it's an honor to be moderating with this star-studded cast we have today. Um, so just want to kick it off. Um, as a general intro to the new pre-submission guidance, um, panelists, what are the major changes to the new FDA guidance that we have? Hey, Shamik, I'll start that one. So a couple things jumped out at me when I read it. Uh, the first was that they are strongly encouraging where you're doing a predetermined change control plan that you come in and have a pre-submission meeting. And I, I would echo that advice. I think it's good advice that the agency is giving there. Um, the other one that I found kind of interesting that I, I wasn't necessarily expecting, um, but they do recommend using an informational type meeting. Um, if you have serious quality system issues or you've received a 483 and you want to come talk to the agency about how to resolve that, 
I think if you're in a situation where you've got serious problems and you know, you're at risk for warning letters or consent decrees or things like that, taking advantage of this might be a wise move. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting, and informational meetings aren't used as often, um, but they do have some value. Yeah, I've really been encouraging companies to do informational meetings, especially if they're fairly early on and that they don't have, um, you know, too many questions to ask FDA, but I've noticed that for the informational meetings that we've submitted, FDA, I, I believe that they let the entire team know that there's an informational meeting coming up and that you're encouraged to attend. And so there's usually a lot of FDA attendees. And while they're only in listen-only mode, they say, I mean, they ask great questions. There's a lot of the, well, you know, I, this isn't uh, this isn't feedback, but just, you know, one thing we may consider. So it really opens up a, a very healthy collaborative dialogue, which I love. Right. Yeah. When I was at FDA, I was a part of several informational meetings and uh, it was just like you said, I don't think any of them were actually for devices that I was going to be working on. It was always somebody else's device. So you get invited there and you always see like the division experts there. Um, and like you said, the feedback was always, there's a lot less stress when you're going to a meeting where you don't have to prepare for it. Those are the best. Um, and so the companies would get this feedback that they probably wouldn't get otherwise, or at least not as quickly. So for small companies, companies with new novel devices, informational meetings are are awesome. Yeah, and, and even for me, I noticed that the, the details that they have gone into and really described what are the different types of meetings that you can have and you know, how to take uh, advantage of those. That is really something that I would welcome uh, for a lot of uh, device manufacturers to take a look at and understand and really figure out when would be a good time to take advantage of these meetings and, and how to come prepared. And uh, uh, there is a lot of good information in there that the device manufacturers should take a close look at. Great, thanks panel. Um, so I guess moving on to the next topic, um, let's get into some do's and don'ts about pre-subs. Um, there are a lot of positives and negatives to it, um, but what are some best practices? Sure, I'll start there. We do a lot of pre-subs in the team, as you know, Shamik. Um, you know, the, one of the interesting things is uh, the new Medufa uh, agreement or the medical device user fee amendments they essentially said they added pre-submissions to the shared goals. And so if and so FDA is really motivated to get pre-subs, uh, the feedback to pre-subs within a timely window. So uh, I, I've seen, you know, FDA being pretty diligent about setting the date of the meeting and really trying to hit that within 75 day um, timeline. I also think, you know, what a do and a don't, in my opinion, is, you know, really think about whether or not you need a pre-sub, right? I think there are companies that uh, either investors or they'll have uh, someone on the board say you have to do a pre-submission. And I'm always a little wary, like, you know, FDA has limited resources. You know, they have a lot of work on their plates right now. So if you actually know the answers to your questions and you're just going in to kind of, you know, show your face, I would say, are you sure you need it? You know, make sure that you're actually going in and you have a, a purpose to be there. Um, so maybe that's kind of a do and a don't. Um, and also really, you know, prepare for that meeting. You know, have a lot of, um, you know, insight into what are you walking into? I think the feedback that you get ahead of time 
can really benefit, you know, the or mold and shape and benefit the meeting that you're going to have with FDA because, hey, maybe there are things that were misunderstood or maybe there are things um, that you don't need to discuss because FDA addressed it in their feedback. So, um, Brian, nope. I know that you yeah. attended a lot of pre-sub meetings. What's your take? <laughs> no, those are a lot of great points. And I think in so in the, the pre-submission guidance, they talk about when you're talking with FDA, you have an hour to do it. And if if it's looking like you're going to be spent or you need more than an hour, they basically say you need to narrow your scope. Um, so I think, and I, I was in so many pre-sub meetings where you can tell that the company was getting anxious that they weren't able to get to some of the questions that they really wanted to ask. Um, so there really needs to be prioritization of those questions before you get in those meetings. Um, and don't be afraid to take control of those meetings either. Um, it and I would always say this at the top of those meetings, you know, uh, company X, this is your meeting. You lead this to where, where you want it to go, ask the questions that you want to ask, as long as you're not presenting like brand new data. Uh, those were, were always easy to just kind of say, you know, this is new data. We can't speak to that now. So also be careful of that. Um, but yeah, just try to narrow your scope, prioritize your questions and go into it knowing that that is your meeting with FDA. Yeah, I think to that point, one of the things I like to do is, let's just say you submit 10 questions and four of them you have no disagreement on. I like to just get those out of the way on a single slide and say, we're not going to discuss question one, two, seven, and eight, because we acknowledge FDA feedback and appreciate it. Thank you, next. <laughs> and then really focus on where you really don't have agreement or alignment and you want to get something out of the meeting. Careful if you submit 10 questions because we've had FDA, even if we submitted five, they'll come back and say, remove one of them because we only have time for four questions. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We had, I mean, it was interesting because we whittled it down to four and we said, okay, here are the main four that we want. And they still answered the question number five. So I was like, thank you. <laughs> but I've seen some pushback with the number of questions that we're asking. And what I've also seen is that based on the material that you send in, FDA will proactively give you comments on that as well. So so they don't just limit themselves to the questions, so they, so they will go beyond that um, just to make sure that that interaction is really useful. But at the same time, sometimes uh, the device manufacturer doesn't know what to expect and they are surprised with those proactive comments as well. And they may have follow-up questions on that, which you can do you know, go through that Q&A during the, the teleconference uh, opportunity that you have right after the, when you re receive the written response. So that's that's one good aspect about having a pre-submission. The other part that I many a times tell our clients is that, especially if they are a smaller organization, engaging even senior le leadership sometimes helps. So that way, even FDA can see their involvement and, and, and know that they are also equally interested and involved. And even from the senior management's perspective, they understand what uh, they have heard at first time from the FDA and they know what work they have uh, cut out for themselves. I think if I were to add a don't, it's if you're not going to take the advice, don't ask for it. Um, <laughs> where I see too many companies that maybe submit a protocol for feedback but then they decide that in that 60 to 75 days to go ahead and start the testing. Well, now it's too late to change your sample prep, your method. Don't ask if you're not gonna follow the advice. Better to ask forgiveness in that case. 
Makes sense. And I think um, a lot of, and probably a lot of people who are listening to this right now, um, this may be their first time interacting with the FDA, either through an informational meeting or the pre-sub. So one of the questions from the audience was, are informational meetings done through a, through the Q-sub process, or how do you set up an informational meeting with the FDA? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a, it is a type of Q-sub. Uh, we usually will still include quite a bit of information in, in the pre-sub packet that goes to the agency. You want to give them something that they can review and look at and have an idea of what your device is or what it will be. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, the biggest thing that's missing are the questions at the end, right? And so, as Brian said, you know, the nice thing is no one needs to waltz into that meeting having read anything. <laughs> I think they, you know, some will and some will, you know, have uh, some information about your product. Uh, but the nice thing is it's kind of a, it reminds them of being back in graduate school, I think, or it did for me. It was just like, oh, it's kind of a lunch and learn, right? You get to like go in and learn something really cool and learn about a technology. Um, you also get to meet some of the other players at FDA, right? Because I think there were, you know, consults on the file or people who were just, you know, would be future consults on the file that uh, you kind of see who's got the expertise that you may need for another one of your files. So, um, but yeah, the informational meeting, um, not commonly used. We don't use it as frequently, but I've been seeing an uptick in, in folks who want to submit one. Fantastic. Thanks, Allison. Anything else from the panel on that that piece? Cool. All right. So moving moving towards PCCPs, um, I guess let's just start. What is a, a PCCP um, from a layperson term? What is it? You know, what is it? Where does it come from? And how can it be beneficial? Sure. I can I can uh, go over that. It's a new process, first of all. So that's why there is a lot of interest, a lot of questions, and, and everyone wants to know exactly what it is and how they can take advantage of that. So if you look at the guidance document, the draft guidance document that essentially talks about ML-enabled device software functions. And what it is is that it's a process where you come up with a plan which is included in your pre-market submission where what you're highlighting is potential changes or, or future changes that you would like to make to the uh, device that you are putting it in the market. And you're presenting a plan and the protocol or the methods that you would use to implement those changes, uh, test those changes, and, and also provide timeline associated with when those changes would get implemented. And then also look at the risk benefit uh, assessment of those changes uh, post uh, you receiving that market clearance. So one of so what happens is that during with that pre -sub, uh, with that uh, pre market submission, the PCCP that plan gets also um, uh, approved by by the reviewers so that way now it's part of that device and its clearance. And then as time goes by the sponsor is expected to implement that the key here is to note that these are you should what you should describe in the pccp are those changes that you will definitely be implementing um, in the near future and also be implementing the way you describe them so it's very critical and to really make sure that once you um, define what those changes are and when they will be implemented and how they will be implemented, that PCCP becomes part of the uh, technical characteristics for that device and it kind of stays with it. So it's a, it 
it's definitely useful because for each of those changes, you don't need a subsequent pre-market uh, submission. So it definitely avoids that that submission and saves you time. But at the same time, you have to. It's a it's a conscious uh, commitment to really go through those changes. Now that's a great summary. Um, I always like origin stories too. Like where did this kind of radical concept come from? Um, and I'm pretty sure it came from, there was a discussion paper in 2019 uh, on AI and ML devices. And, you know, the agency was realizing that software iterations and changes can happen so much faster uh, compared to the hardware space. So they wanted to come up with a concept that would allow manufacturers to make these changes on a more rolling basis. And so this discussion paper in 2019 brought up this concept that Rishi just described. Um, it was refined over the course of a few years and other discussion papers. And then uh, at the end of 2022 in Fedora, it was actually codified in the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. So it is, the concept of a PCCP is law now. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it applies to all devices. It applies to 510Ks, it applies to PMAs. It's not limited in what you can use it for. Some great examples I think FDA has brought up in some of their recent conversations are things like exp expiration dating, right? They, they've always tended to accept that if you had a protocol for your stability or your shelf life, that you could extend that going forward as long as you followed that protocol. Um, but I think there's a lot more uses and some strategic advantage to using these because what it also does is it kind of keeps out your competitor a little bit in that you can't leverage what somebody did in a PCCP as part of the predicate that you're using. So that new manufacturer would have to, to basically prove that themselves, not just leverage the fact that they're substantially equivalent. I did note that in the guidance document, they state that you need to have clear information about what was in your PCCP as part of your 510K summary or as part of the decision uh, summary if you go to PMA or de novo. So I, I know that they're trying to give, um, at least be a little more transparent with what went into that file. But as you said, Nancy, um, you know, companies have to figure it out themselves. But I think even though you can't use the, the PCCP as part of your SE argument, at least as a competitor, you can look at these 510K summaries if we're talking about the 510K space um, and see what FDA allowed in the PCCP. So you can at least get some ideas of, well, I can apply that to my device because company X was able to get this through in a PCCP. So um, there are, it, it's nice that FDA made that clear in the draft guidance document that there needs to be this transparency with what is in the PCCPs. Right, and, and it's it's worth looking at the two, the Appendix A and B. What uh, the guidance document tells you is, is there's a lot of details in there in terms of exactly what a PCCP needs to include, and that is fairly extensive, and it requires a lot of um, careful thinking and planning to really make sure that these are things that you are going to be doing in future. Right, and along with some examples that they have included in there, even th that can serve as a good guidance as a starting point to really identify what are those pieces that are, are changes to the device that are worth uh, going into a PCCP. 
So again, coming back to what Nancy had said uh, earlier was that a pre-sub to really discuss that PCCP really comes in handy at that point. Right, and I think FDA has been taking every chance that they can to reiterate just that point. I mean, the the PCCP draft guidance came out in April, and then the the pre-sub guidance update uh, that Nancy was talking about at the the top um, that came out just in the past month or so. And I feel when I read that, I felt like they they had a red line of the pre-sub guidance like saved. But then when the, the PCCP guidance came out, they're like, we got to get this out and we got to talk about PCCPs in this pre-sub guidance because this is this is a very, very much a new thing for FDA for reviewers to have to handle. So um, even in the educational seminar that FDA gave, they were using that as a platform to say pre-sub, pre-sub, pre-sub. So can't stress that enough. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's definitely in the um, specific questions too, of like how you, what you should be asking about the PCCP. We've had a, um, a few de novos recently where they've said, you know, submit a submission issue request after we get a hold letter. And so we'll, we'll put it in a separate SIR actually. They'll say, put all the questions about any changes to the PCCP in a, a second SIR so that that can be handled separately. Uh, and we've been getting some really great feedback about what FDA wants to see. I will say uh, a few months ago, or I should say like six months ago, it wasn't very consistent. Like we were seeing some review teams asking quite a bit. And then um, more recently it's been, hey, you know, strike some of this stuff from your PCCP because it sort of goes beyond what we're looking for. Uh, but I, I think they're finally getting to a place, especially with these new guidance documents where they can say, this is what we're looking for. But you're right, Brian, I think the the amount of um, a burden on a lot of the reviewers and all of a sudden having to you know, review this and, and really understand it is um, challenging, right? Technology keeps moving forward and so they have to keep trying to you know, figure out how to regulate it and make it safe and effective. Yeah, and I even noticed that in pre-subs there's some hesitancy to commit <laughs> and like a little bit of discouragement like do you really want to complicate your submission by that do you really want to do that like might take us longer to review it and I'm sitting there thinking you have Madufa goals you're gonna hit your goal <laughs> I want to be kind to you but I really want this in there too so you know there's definitely some understanding yeah. of what the relationship is, how much at risk your submission is, how far do you want to push it? But I also feel like it's from a manufacturer standpoint, a relatively low risk to include one, because if there's too much conflict on it, I can re-pull that, still get my device accepted, right? right? Yeah. But if I can't resolve the issues with the predetermined change control plan, it, that may be one route to go. <laughs> yeah, I think, what you're just talking about kind of I don't think there's any limit defined as to how many proposed changes you can make in the PCCPs but you you should be mindful of how many you do include um, you don't want to include every potential change under the sun uh, you do want to try to make it manageable to F for FDA to a certain extent uh, but like you said Nancy if you can always make tweaks to it if you're running into some resistance during the the review process right and it's important to note that 
once the PCCP gets becomes part of that 510K that got cleared, let's say, then changing that PCCP, let's say down the road, and you realize that you cannot or you don't want to implement that change or you're unable to do it the way you claimed it, might end up uh, causing you to do a, another pre-market submission at that point. So that wouldn't be a very easy change for you. So I think Rishi just kind of tagging off of that, right? Like, and we have a lot of questions from the audience and I'll try and get to them after kind of this next few topics, but what are some of the most common misconceptions when it comes to PCCPs? Right, so one of the things that I have noted is that because the guidance document talks about ML enabled device software functions, um, most of the folks who have started looking at PCCP, they believe that it's only applicable if you are if your device has, is using machine learning or if it is a device that has software in it that's like a SIMD or a device that is software only, uh, like a software as a medical device. And those are um, not the only devices, but that's what most of the people think that that's, that's where it's the PCCP uh, process applies. Yeah, I, I think I've seen somewhere people before the omnibus bill changed the law, who submitted 510Ks and were told, no, you can't do one because the predicate didn't have one. Um, so I think that's a common, that's lingering out there. It's not that, you know, six months ago or eight months ago, FDA said, no, you can't do it because of this reason. So that's gone. The other thing is I've seen people take it to the other extreme of I can put every future change into my PCCP and I never ever have to do another 510K for as long as my device is on the market. And it, it's not really that. The level of detail you have to provide um, really requires you to know what changes you're gonna make, not, not consider every possible change in the future. Um, so those two extremes, I think we have to be careful of. <laughs> Great, great. So, go ahead, Sorry, Shamik, I just saw a question pop up that I think I can, <laughs> it was about the, it's sort of the, the merge of the QSUB meeting as well as talking about PCCPs. Um, you know, it really, you have one hour, right? You have one hour to have that discussion with FDA. <clears throat> and so what you submit to the agency can be potentially your your proposed PCCP or what you're planning to include in a future pre-market submission. But you're right, Every the person asked, you know, how do you discuss everything that's in the content within Appendix A, which is massive, right? And so those are a lot of recommendations of what it should look like. I would say really keep your questions focused on what you actually want FDA's feedback on. You shouldn't just say like, what do you think of it? Is there, you know, like an open-ended question of, you know, do you have any other recommendations? I would really focus on, you know, did we get XYZ question or a section correct? Would you have any feedback? And really, you know, focus their attention to get feedback on what you're looking for. They are supposed to and likely going to read the entire thing uh, and they may give you additional considerations and that would be, you know, as part of the feedback and that would be a good place to, you know, see if you have any clarification on what they added to those additional clarifications in order to discuss that during that one hour meeting. But really that hour, one hour meeting is for 
you to ask clarification of their feedback, not to ask new questions, not to rebut anything that they said. It really is your window to, hey, this is what we provided, and here are some clarification uh, questions on what you gave us as feedback. Right, so yeah, the, be mindful of that hour. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, the is this okay question was was a common one. Like, is is everything that I presented okay? <laughs> and I and you get why manufacturers ask that question, right? They want to make sure that what they plan to submit is is good. But if there's something about your future device that they have a wholesale issue with, they're going to tell you. Um, so you you don't. You don't need to ask that is everything okay question if there's i feel like if there's something so fundamentally wrong uh with your pre-sub there a good reviewer will tell you that even without being prompted yeah some of the things i like to ask are like is that sample size adequate to demonstrate or is this the right we believe this is the right acceptance criteria. Do you agree that this is the right acceptance criteria? Those things that if you get agreement on, the rest of it you can work out typically. Amazing. So um, another question from the audience, and it kind of ties into our next next topic here, but um, kind of geared towards you, Allison. But what have your conversations been like so far with the FDA about PCCPs? Sure, so we've been part of quite a few conversations now, mostly in the de novo space, some in the 510K space. Uh, they've been, have, I feel like FDA is, um, they're learning from industry still as well, which is nice. They're kind of, you know, they're giving some guidelines, uh, but really allowing us to present what we think is the best path forward for our device. Um, you know, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, six months plus ago <clears throat> i felt like fda was being uh they were really asking for very detailed que detailed questions about the pccp and asking for more detail in the file where recently they've said you know why don't you leave this area a little more generic you know you can make future changes within your 510k or update the pccp at that time um, i think they're you know, looking at least burdensome principles and trying to make sure that um, they're not making the review process harder for themselves, but also for the company. Um, yeah, I think it's it's evolving, but I think the guidance document helped a lot. I know that they're still taking comments on it, I think until the first week of July. So get your comments in. <laughs> yeah. I think we've also had some conversations on PMA products um, with the agency, and, and those are a little bit different because we were talking about change in manufacturing sites, or we were talking about changes um, not in the software space, but think of things like single use to reusable. Um, so, and really what it, it comes down to me is if you can ha really have predefined acceptance criteria and well-defined test criteria, it, the conversation goes a lot easier, but still some reluctance to sign up for too much too soon. Yeah, and for example, I think there was, I mean, FDA recently said, hey, you, you know, you provided <clears throat> changes to your network architecture and training and thresholds and 
these we we kind of believe are outside the scope of the PCCP um, since they're you know fundamental changes. And so based on that, you know, can you can you pull that out of your PCCP or can you update it because those changes would likely require a 510k in the future. So they're even pointing out like where things may fall outside the scope. That's good to know before you <laughs> do your submission. Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe we should start taking some questions from the audience. Like I said, we have a lot of questions, so I'll try and get through them one by one and and I'll just throw it to the panel and anybody who wants to answer can answer. Um, first question, is there a specific format or template for PCCPs? Yeah, so the um, if you look at the guidance document, it's fairly descriptive in terms of all the elements that they are looking for, all the details that they are looking for. And I think, yeah, if you follow that as a template, you'll uh, you'll be able to provide every, all the information that uh, the reviewers would be looking for. Just as a quick side note, uh, if you're using eStar to submit your PCCP, they've actually updated the, the eStar template so you right. can note that you're including a, a PCCP. So um, just keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I think that's not doing, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, if you're not doing software, like I would use the guidance to help you get the categories, but obviously you need to adjust it if you're looking at different attributes than what you would find in a software PCCP. Yeah, I think that's a good point that FDA's um, new software guidance came out. They came out with a new eStar template, which is the electronic uh, resource or template and resource. And it's uh, fantastic. I mean, it's the 4.0 version and it's allowing you to put the you know enhanced or basic software documentation as part of your filing um, also for the PCCP information. I don't think, I mean, eStar is not required until October but we've been using it for the last year and a half because we knew it was coming. And I have I talked to a lot of reviewers. I've only had one reviewer say that they didn't like it, <laughs> but for the most part, they really like the eStar because it matches up really beautifully with their smart template internally at FDA. So they can walk through your file and essentially pull the, the content from your eStar and, and apply it to their smart template. And it also allows really easy navigation and, um, you know, any of the consults who are helping the lead reviewer on the file can really easily find the documents that they need. So I think, you know, start using it if you're not. And it also helps uh, really identify if there are any missing components, right? If you do have something that, that uh, you know, Rishi's seen it a few times, like there's a document that's missing, guys, and I need this in order to um, actually get the file to say that it's complete and ready to submit. So really cool uh, resources that FDA has been coming out with. And it's easy to upload in the customer collaboration portal. So it's like <laughs> FDA is really technologically advancing uh, <laughs> at a rapid pace. Fantastic. And FDA, and FDA is not paying us to promote the, the eStar template. Oh just yeah, so sorry. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And um, Allison, sticking with you, um, could you elaborate on what is in scope and out of scope? Um, and, you know, just tagging on the question, like if, if changes to architecture, training and thresholds are out of scope, what's actually in scope? 
Do we have a couple hours? I, I think um, <laughs> I would welcome this person to write to me directly and we can kind of talk about what's in scope. Um, but I would go back to Rishi's comment of like actually going through, I mean, FDA says in that guidance document, here are the things that we'd actually consider as part of a complete PCCP. So um, I'd start there. And then, I mean, as I said, you know, putting that into a pre-submission and having that, um, having them check it and really asking the direct questions, hopefully it's in a really good shape by the time that you actually submit it as part of your pre-market submission. One example I can give is updating a slope in a, that's used in an algorithm. So you're going to get more evidence over time. You're going to adjust that constant that's used in your equation. Like that would be a great example where you know what the acceptance criteria is. You know where you can change it. You know you're going to change it. You may not know what the number is yet, but that could be, you know, pretty straightforward change. Yeah. Even uh, I, I think the guidance does mention that if if it's going to change the indications for use in any way, then uh, that would not be entertained. And some safety efficacy changes um, may, may be outside the scope. I think FDA will have to look at those changes to really understand the extent and what is the impact, and then uh, they'll, they'll be able to comment on that. So it's a very- I, I think what I'm hearing though, Rishi, is that we should probably put together a really nice template and provide it <laughs> to yeah. folks and say, here's what, you know, we've, we've deciphered the guidance for you uh, and we've, you know, seen enough of these now with FDA and here's what's fundamentally, you know, important to put in your PCCP. So I, maybe a little side hustle for the two of us, Rishi. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think it's, it's a really interesting question because I mean, the the PCCP guidance gives like very succinct examples of what they expect to see for a software PCCP, AI ML PCCP. If you're uh, adjusting the sensitivity or specificity of your algorithm because you have more data to train your algorithm, that's something that you can include in a PCCP. We heard Allison just talk about if you're changing the wholesale architecture of your device I mean changing the architecture of your software is kind of like changing the the foundation of the device it's like you're almost creating a new device so that would be outside but for in terms of what the act says is in scope or not in scope it really doesn't specify and so I think outside of um, the world of software where we, where we have this guidance uh, for for other devices, it'll be sort of, there'll be a learning curve. I think the example that Nancy provided of going from single use to uh, reusable, that that to me also rings true of something that I would include in a hardware-based PCCP, but um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what PC, PCCPs get authorized uh, outside of the software space and what kind of becomes, these are common, types of changes to include in hardware PCCPs. So I think just tagging onto that, there's another question um, from the audience. Uh, well, I guess more of a comment. Um, there's some confusion on the comments from the panel suggesting that the PCCP guidance document applies broadly. Um, the document scope says, this draft guidance is applicable to ML uh, slash DSFs that the manufacturer intends to modify over time. 
um, thus only for machine learning software. Anybody have any comments to that audience so, comment? So that guidance is specific to that scope, but what is not specific to that scope is the actual law itself. So the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was modified in December of last year to allow for predetermined change control plans for all devices, any 510K, any PMA, um, and FDA is starting to put that in. They did a, a roundtable discussion with IVD manufacturers a couple weeks ago where they said, no, this applies to all devices, not just machine learning, not just software. Um, so the guidance itself is a very narrow focus, which I would use as a reference, even if I was doing a hardware change. Um, but the law itself, which is codified in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, is very broad in scope and not limited to any subcategory of device. Thanks, Nancy. Um, so I guess that's more of like a strategy question, but what are the bounds of a PCCP? If in version two of your device, you are planning to expand the indications for use, which would normally require a new 510K, would a, uh, sorry, could a PCCP allow for that type of change to be done under a cleared PCCP without an additional 510K? No, I mean, that's, yeah, if, you, if you're if you definitely going to change the indications for use, then uh, yeah, that, that will not be acceptable. But it's, a, um, most of the changes that you are going to have are going to be in the, area where because you're also going to do a, a impact analysis too so that so you you will have to discuss that you will have to show exactly what is that impact and and how you're trying to make sure that the device that was clear you're still kind of sticking to the indications for use for that device and what it was intended for yeah and i'm just going to push back a little i think that's the way FDA has been interpreting it and, and doing on that. And it makes sense because indications are a pretty big change. Um, but I think th there's nothing in the law itself that Correct. excludes yeah. indication changes. And yeah. there are some spaces where I think it may be more appropriate. So if you had an imaging software that was looking at different contrast agents, right? Maybe you would launch it with two of these contrast agents, but now I'm adding a third contrast agent in my PCCP that may be considered an indication change depending on how it's worded, but probably that would be one that I would at least go have the pre-sub conversation to see if it's worth pursuing that or not. Yeah, the, the guidance is, there's an interesting section when it talk the PCCP guidance, there's an interesting section where it talks about uh, the proposed changes in a PCCP should be within the same intended use as the original device. And then the next comment is, at this time, we believe that there shouldn't be any indication changes. Um, and to me, that's kind of wiggle language because like you said, Nancy, the, the law doesn't say that it needs to be within the same indication statement. So I, I would presume that FDA might get some comments on that particular section of the guidance. Uh, you know, why not, why why can't we uh, expand our indications within reason, right? Um, so th it'll be interesting to see the comments and what the, the final version of the guidance looks like on that specific topic. Thanks, Brian. 
Um, I guess next question from the audience, do you see parallels between the types of changes that could be submitted in a special 510K and those that could be included in a PCCP? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's there there are definitely similarities. I think uh, you know this is part of FDA's goal to reduce burden, to try to uh, you know not have a 510k submitted every single day because you've decided to change something about your your algorithm. Um, it actually has more parallel, in my opinion, to the pre-cert program. You know, and I think while that program is still uh, or it's in its next phase of the pilot program, uh, to my understanding. You know, I think there's a lot of power to uh, getting companies that can be pre-certified and really having them, you know, reviewed as those, uh, what do they call it, like the excellence principles, right? It's like product quality and clinical responsibility and cybersecurity responsibility, like you're evaluated as a company. And then as part of like the total product life cycle or TPLC, you know, once you've had your excellence appraisal and once you've had, um, you know, your review determination, they can then decide whether or not you can have a streamlined review, right? So whether uh, you actually need to submit something uh, to FDA for their actual review of your product changes, or can you, you know, update it because you have been considered one of these um, companies of excellence, or I can't remember the name of it. So I think there's, um, there's a lot of hope, you know, in that program, and also, you know, seeing these guidance documents uh, get updated, and, and hopefully, it won't be as uh, painful, I would say, to you know make these changes and uh, more similar to also like the letter to file process. But I do think for sorry, just to tag on to that, I do think for hardware devices, when I say hardware, I, I'm, I just mean not software. I don't mean like hardware associated with a software device. So for non-hardware devices, I do kind of see that as a the types of changes that you'd have in a special, you know, changes where you can use uh, standards or testing that you had already performed and you're just kind of reiterating that testing. That does kind of ring true to me as well as the types of PCCPable uh, changes. Um, you just made a new word, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's it's interesting you brought up the the excellence program. It was a very ambitious program. You know, when you read those discussion papers, it's like, wow, they they want to take on a lot, and you know, for good reason. Again, software moves fast, and they want a program that moves fast. Uh, but it's it's good that industry has this PCCP component of that proposed program. Um, and I do wonder, so there was the post-market side of it, right? Uh, or the, the auditing side of it that was in that excellence program. And so now I wonder with PCCPs now being the law, if uh, investigators may start focusing on that somewhat. Uh, so if they're doing an audit of a company with a PCCP, if I'm that investigator, I want to see it. I want to see how you're following it, how you're tracking it, if you're following it properly, uh, because this is this really is kind of a trust exercise between FDA and industry. And um, I kind of see, even though this excellent program, excellence program isn't in, isn't uh, hasn't come to fruition yet. I think FDA can still plug those gaps in by directing their investigators to. Uh, focus on PCCP. So if you have one, I would say keep the documentation in, in good shape. 
I think on that note, um, the next question we have is like, has the FDA or MDSAT program discussed how they will audit PCCP modifications during inspections? I personally haven't seen anything on that, um, but it, it, it's fair game. I think it's kind of similar to UDI. I don't think a lot of inspectors will go in and, uh, or for a long time they didn't review the UDI requirements, but um, yeah, I haven't seen anything about how they plan to evaluate this or put it as part of the inspection. I mean, design controls are always a, a popular mm -hmm. audit focus, and this would kind of fall into that space. So, fair game. <laughs> fair game. Uh, so, uh, next question from the audience, um, and kind of just pulling it back, right? When preparing a PCCP, what do you suggest would be the first step to take? So, um, so there is a one of the things that you will do is that you'll also create a list of changes that you're going to make. So the first thing would be to really understand what are those changes that you feel that you would want to have them included in that PCCP and then how uh, you would go about implementing them and testing them, uh, et cetera, and the timeline also, because you're also uh, committing to when those changes would be implemented. So the initial um, internal thinking or you know, uh, understanding is essentially really looking at each of these changes and what does it take to get those changes defined and then uh, implemented and in, in a timely fashion. So that's, that's where you would kind of go through and then you would kind of look at which ones are um, things that, that you want to include now versus those that may be a lot more uncertain in terms of your ability to really follow through on a committed uh, implementation protocol. So then you may want to keep those out for a while until you really know that you would be able to follow through. Yeah, I think to that point, one of the things I see when you're testing your original device, that sometimes, particularly for software, I see some like really big test validation protocols and they're huge and everything is in it. And if you think ahead to, at some point I'm gonna make a change and it's only gonna impact this portion of it, you know, breaking that original validation into those separate subparts so you have the same protocol you can re-execute on the change device. It requires a lot of forward thinking because you have to know how you're going to do it in the future. Um, but I think that makes it easier to sell if you can use the same protocol for your change that you did for your original device. Right. The, the other part is that sometimes, like what you were mentioning, Nancy, about testing, as you go through certain tests may not be successful so and then you need it you know that it needs more work and and at the same time you really want to uh, go ahead and make that submission because you have other reasons to get that device out so it may be that you you know exactly what you're going to do in terms of the implementation and testing but you just need more time so so those could be set aside and and included as part of pccp and then still go ahead with the with the submission. I think the very first thing I would do if I was doing a PCCP for either a new device or an existing device 
in hardware or software would would be I would get a meeting with marketing because they they always have the wish list of requirements that they want to have in a new device or in an existing device and you know they're the voice of the customer that you need to know what what they envision this device uh, is going to be like in, in five years ten years and then once you have that that wish list then it can start to be sort of whittled down with engineering with what's possible with regulatory with what maybe has been allowable in the pcc space so i know it's kind of basic like of course you're going to involve marketing in these um in the development of a device, but I think for PCCP in particular, those are the people with the wish list. So yeah. definitely have them heavily involved. I was going to say the first thing to do, but now that you've said that, Brian, I think it may be the second thing to do would be to call Rishi <laughs> <laughs> to have him help you. Um, I was wondering, Shamik, was that a question from Steve Bernacki that put that in? Because I, I feel like we were supposed to, that was like a, a lob to <laughs> plug our consulting services <laughs> <laughs> um well this whole show is a is a plug for our consulting services <laughs> um, all right continuing with the with the audience questions um does the pccp apply to any algorithm based samd um added on not all uh, sorry not all algorithms are based on machine learning but still will be improved over time yeah the the short answer is yes Fantastic. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think as Nancy said, probably looking at that guidance document, even though that guidance document was very focused, like looking at this as a, almost a general use, you know, I, I think it's a good reference for um, yeah. yeah other changes that you plan to make to your device. Um, and I'm I'm looking at you, Brad and Allison. But does the FDA expect an, an estimated time frame for when a manufacturer expects to make a PCCP modification? I don't think there's anything in the guidance that specifies that. Um, which again, bringing in the marketing uh, thing, it, it can be sort of a long-term plan. At least that's my current thinking. Maybe in the next guidance document, there'll be some sort of timeframe component. But again, in the act, the law, there there isn't that component there either. So um, but maybe, maybe if I'm an, uh, an investigator, maybe I would be... And if I see that a company isn't implementing changes that they had proposed, you know, I want that information to get back to the review division and say, hey, they said they were going to do this. They didn't do it um, just to kind of help shape that feedback loop with FDA as they kind of try to polish this program. But uh, long answer to what should have been just <laughs> a short few word <laughs> question. But um, yeah, there's there's no duration. Yeah, I think we'll see we'll see what the final guidance document says as right. well. But it's anyone's. I mean, they're they're they've. This is on the prioritized list of guidance documents. But as we've seen, there was a guidance document that came out yesterday for patient matched guides to orthopedic implants, and I think that was drafted in 2010, right? So I think there's. I mean, that one has a very interesting history. But you know, hopefully FDA will get the comments, be able to um, turn this around, and, and get us a final. Uh, final guidance soon. Sorry, Rishi, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that the guidance does mention that not that FDA has any expectations in terms of timeline, but they do want, also want the device manufacturer to say what do they think in terms of when they would 
be able to get it done. So, so it's it's still um, fairly flexible. It, you know, it's not like there are dates committed. So, so you can still say that we want we will get it done over the next month or three months or six months or some time frame like that to make it more realistic. So that way, even the reviewers understand that these are things that have a fairly good chance of getting implemented. Yeah, I think there's also right an element where FDA will get feedback when you need to, when you find out you go to implement your PCCP and you find out you can't the way you submitted it and you need to make a change to it because that requires a new submission itself. So I think there will be that learning feedback and curve and I think for manufacturers too. I didn't think of that. Like there's going to be a little bit of of learning curve to go with it. So I have two more questions and I just want to preface this by saying um, if there's any questions we didn't get to from the audience, feel free to follow up with us and we will uh, we will try our best to get back to you on that. Um, is there a good way to search for devices that have associated approved or clear PCCPs? Hmm. Not that I know of. I know that we use um, as an internal database and can search for them very easily. Um, but that's a good point. Maybe this is as part of the feedback uh, or as part of the um, comment uh, after this uh, is over, we can maybe post a few of them that we've identified that FDA has published. I will say there is a great database for all of the AI ML devices that FDA is, um, that they have cleared or granted or approved. And it has currently, I mean, the most recent one, it says it was, the final decision was in July of 2022. So clearly they're missing a lot in this list, but it has about 500 um, uh, 510K numbers and DeNova numbers in there. So I'll drop that as well to, to Stephen to share with the group. Cool. And I, I know we're coming up on time here, but I have one more question and I want to give the, the panel an opportunity to give like some last remarks on the pre-sub and PCCP process, um, but is there anything you as a panel who have worked at the FDA or, or interacted with the FDA frequently that you would comment or disagree with in the draft guidance in regards to being least burdensome approach? I mean, nothing, I don't know. I'm an FDA fanboy, so uh, <laughs> this is this is such a this is such a gift to industry, really. Um, uh, and it's it's so much in the spirit of least burdensome. I mean, you can release future iterations of your device without telling FDA about it. That that's huge. Um, I, I, we talked about the the indication point uh, about not being able to change indications. I think. I would probably comment on that. I feel like there there should be some flexibility there in being able to extend your patient population uh, to subpopulations, especially in the algorithm space. Um, you know, I, I think it makes sense for FDA to ask for pre-submissions for these PCCPs. Um, obviously, they can't mandate it, but um, I think it makes sense to uh, to do them. But um, no, I guess nothing jumped out immediately as being FDA overstepping their bounds. Yeah, probably the the one feedback I've heard from clients is that the amount of information that has to be submitted in this 
I have to be pretty far along in my development process in order to fill out a PCCP. So it's it's more prescriptive that you you know exactly what your change is going to be in the future. Um, and so that that's a little bit of a burden and you have to make that decision. Do I continue to where I can define it that far and submit this? And you're adding time, right? I'm going to do a pre-sub. I'm going to submit my 510K. So I start adding 90 days to my timeline from a manufacturing standpoint. And at some point, it tips to where it's more efficient to do a separate 510K later. Thanks, Nancy. So yeah. we're we're definitely at time, um, and I want to give uh, our, you know, each of our panelists like maybe one to two sentences of like a takeaway message from today, um, or is there any like last lasting advice that you guys can give? Um, Nancy, do you want to start? Sure. It, we got this gift in the omnibus bill. Take it, run with it, try it out. Doesn't cost you anything to try it. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Um, I mean, I was going to save my, this is a, a trust exercise with FDA is my take-home message, but I'll, so I'll just reiterate that it is a trust exercise. Uh, don't abuse it and keep your documents in order for that audit. Um, and I know we brought this up before, but just remember when you're, if you're using a, a predicate that has a PCCP, you can't use those PCCP items for your substantial equivalence comparison. It has to be the original device. So also keep that in mind. Thanks, Brian. Rishi? Yeah, again, with uh, like what Nancy said, the PCCP um, is definitely useful if you have a class three device. Uh, just think about what happens when you make a change to a class three device and what you go through and the time period and, and all the effort that you go through. So if you already know what you're going to be changing, then it, this is a perfect opportunity and it's definitely less burdensome as compared to going through any of the the post pma types of device changes or manufacturing changes or etc so so it, it 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 does it does bring a lot of value and and then coming back to the pre-submission I, I think the more um you understand that process the better you will be at in terms of really knowing the do's and don'ts, when to use it, when not to use, what questions to ask, what not to ask, and then be able to really uh, put together your submission so that you maximize your uh, probability for success. Amazing. And last but not least, Allison? Um, I'll go back to what the, the previous question to add to that because of the uh, I didn't see any massive things that were burdensome, I agree that it's a lot of documentation, right? Like FDA is asking you to, to put a lot into it. Um, and I would say from the comment that Nancy made, you know, if it feels like, oh my gosh, we have to be so far along to even put that into a pre-submission, you know, there are areas where you can say this is not yet determined yet, or, or this is, you know, TBD. I mean, there are things even for a clinical protocol that we're like, we haven't determined this yet, <clears throat> but really we're giving you the fundamentals of what we plan to do or the the pieces that we actually want your feedback on so it doesn't have to be i would say you know don't feel like you have to have everything hashed out by the time you go to talk to fda i think what fda wants is that you communicate with them let them provide um, you know some feedback and be sort of stakeholders in your 
device because ultimately it's going to reduce the amount of time that you then are going through the pre-market process, um, which helps them as well. Win-win. <laughs> uh, Steve, I'm going to pass it back to you. Thanks, Shamik. Uh, major thank you to everyone for joining today. Uh, we appreciate being with us. Panelists, thank you for sharing your expertise and advice. Uh, this is very interesting to listen to, and y'all are a lot of fun. A follow-up email with today's recording and a summary of questions covered will be sent to everybody by tomorrow. Uh, also, please know we upload these shows to our Device Advice podcast, uh, which we encourage you to search for and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, our next RQM Plus live show will be Thursday, July 27th. Uh, we haven't formally announced it yet, but what I can say is we'll be joined by a notified body representative for that one, which is always exciting. Um, since you registered for today's show, you will receive an email notification when we announce that event. Um, another place you could learn of when we announce uh, the show and events of any kind is our LinkedIn page. Uh, we hope you'll follow us there. We touch on industry news, we share free res resources, uh, information about upcoming events and career opportunities as well. So with that said, uh, that's a wrap for today. Thanks for being here and we hope you'll join us again next month. Bye everybody. Bye.